This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Patrick Ness, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I mean, we're going to have to declare this. Patrick is in London and I'm in Sydney, and that's not what we're declaring. We're declaring that we've probably had 20 minutes of fussing about trying to connect. We have, although I'm actually in Los Angeles, not London. Oh, wow. So that's why the time was not what you quite thought it was. So I was at least fussing in some sort of daylight. So yeah. Now, why did I think you are in London? I lived in London for 20 years, uh, and I've only recently moved back to Los Angeles. I've been back here about a year-ish. Oh, wow. But I've, I haven't I haven't really trumpeted it because, you know, I tend to keep, it's funny, social media, I tend to be, I tend to give the appearance of being open and sharing a lot with actually being open and sharing very much. So, <laughs> so, so really you're shy and an introvert? Yeah, you have to be really paying attention to see that I've moved to Los Angeles. So tell me why. Why did you make that move? Particularly, well, I guess you wouldn't have known that we were um, coming up to these uh, tricky times, but what led uh, you to that? It was, I mean, I'd lived in England for quite a long time. You know, I mean, I was uh, raised on the West Coast of the United States. So, I mean, so I'm American and it's um, uh, that just a lot of reasons. 19 years is a long time to live in England. I had a close friend pass away and I had two other close friends who lived on the West Coast and my parents aren't getting younger and Brexit was happening. And I always say that Brexit is a disaster and Trump is a disaster. So if you have to live in a disaster, you might as well have a pool. Mm. That's what's that. So I just sort of, and it just felt right. And a lot of my work is here now. So um, yeah, I mean, it just, it just felt time. I, my, I was an army kid, so moving about a lot doesn't, doesn't bother me much. And Los Angeles is a very nice place to live. Well, I'll tell you this, up to recently, I'm a big frequenter, if you like, of the United States, and I, have, I spend four to six weeks in San Francisco most years, great almost town. every year. Yeah, great, great town. town. Good food. Yeah, great town, great food, terrible weather terrible weather. (laughs) And I often come to LA to visit friends. So I'm familiar with that as well. So um, I've always really loved the weather in LA. Uh, But I don't think we'll be doing this anytime soon. It might be a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Might be a while. Um, The world will be a different place. It already is a different place. It will. Now I'm going to introduce you. There might be one or two people in the world that don't know who Patrick Ness is. He's an award-winning and best-selling author of the Chaos Walking Trilogy, soon to be a major motion picture. He's also the author of the critically acclaimed novels A Monster Calls, More Than This, The Rest of Us, Just Live Here, Release, and The Ocean Was Our Sky. He has won every major prize in children's fiction, including the Carnegie Medal twice, which is almost unheard of. He has also written a screenplay for the film of A Monster Calls and Class, the BBC Doctor Who drama. So I want to talk to you about sense of place because that is something that I think we're all thinking about at the moment, a little bit about globalism and what's happened in Brexit. Do you know what I'm feeling at the moment? That more and more we are living 
in a global community. And when you talk about fiction, particularly YA, it is usually global, like any young person living anywhere in the world can read it. And I feel that the community online is global, yet we are heading towards in some places like the US and and, and like uh, England, we are making trying to make our lives smaller again. Is that an observation that you make? Uh, yeah. I mean, you're leaving out Scott Morrison's Australia, but yes. uh, yeah. Um, oh, same, same. <laughs> I mean, but the wheel turns, it really, really does. I mean, um, Trump was a reaction against Obama, even though things were great. People just, you know, they get, get in their heads, they want to change. I think the wheel will keep turning. I think, you know, I think we ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. I think there will always be, um, it's always that argument that, uh, culture is actually better and sharper in harder times. So the cultural reaction to Trump has been, you know, very sharp and very, um, there's a lot of good stuff there. And, uh, uh, so I think, I think, I think the wheel will turn back. Um, yeah, we're a fickle species. We don't like doing any one thing particularly for too long. I think the no, we don't. Now our podcasts, uh, the stories behind the story. So really what, brought you here to writing and you've got such a stellar career um talk to me about how writing came to you how old were you what did you study people often ask you you know what do you want to be when you grow up did you ever say that you wanted to be a writer no because I didn't think that was possible for somebody like me growing up in a little suburb of Seattle not even a suburb of Seattle it's a suburb of Tacoma which is an even smaller town do you know I've Um, been to Seattle as well Seattle's beautiful. Seattle's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city. And the whole, yeah. that whole part of the country is beautiful. And I love it. And that's, you know, um, many of my books are set there. Burn is set there. Yeah. Um, that's my new book. I'm going to plug in. That's yeah, yeah. Book. Keep plugging. Yeah. Keep plugging. Yep. But no, I didn't think, I didn't think, I thought that would something, that was, that to me felt as remote as winning sort of pop idol, you know, or yeah. Australian idol or American idol. Um, it didn't feel in any way plausible. But I always say that real writers don't write, they write anyway. You know, you may never think that you're going to get a book published. You should write one anyway. A real writer would. Mm-hmm. You know, I never thought anybody would film a screenplay of mine. I wrote one anyway. So, I mean, that's that, that kind of stubbornness, I think, is the real key to writing. So you went to school. Um, and what did you think you were going to be? I went to a university in America that had a big film school because I thought, well, maybe I could be a film editor. And I, I hasten to add that uh, I come from uh, a military family, very, very American working class. And uh, both careers of film editing and writing were completely outlandish. But film editing seemed more at least like a craft, you know, <laughs> there's a union. And so, uh, um, and so I went and, but I just, I took a lot of literature classes just because that was my interest. And I took a lot of writing classes as well. And uh, I realized sort of halfway through at the point where I applied to film school um, and got it and turned it down, um, I uh, wanted to write. That's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to write prose. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, again, I have very little expectation that it would be a career. It was mm-hmm. just a liberal arts degree, which I think are really good degrees. They teach how to think. And, you know, I used it to work in publicity for a while, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing super exciting, but then um, I wrote anyway, and I wrote my first book, and to my absolute astonishment, it got published. How old were you when it got published? Thirty-one. Wow, that's young. So they didn't, my books didn't really didn't take off until um, I was about thirty-seven, thirty-eight. So it came late. It doesn't wasn't an instant overnight success at all. 
Yeah. Well, I think instant overnight success doesn't come that often, does it? No, and I think it's got huge risks. There are some people who really, you know, like Zadie Smith, I think, is a properly great writer. But a lot of other people who have that first big book when they're very, very young kind of fall away a lot. So, yeah. so I mean, I'd, it's, it would be a lie to say I wish I had. I'm so glad that I was waited so many years to have any kind of success. That's a lie, of course. But it also has its benefits. So. Yeah, it does. Um, you write both adult fiction and YA, don't you? I do. And, and I'm often curious about writing, adults writing um, YA, because when I... Like, for instance, when I'm reading um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez or um, when I'm reading, um, uh, what's the atonement author's name? Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. I have watched over the years how their stories have aged with their ageing, right? Mm -hmm. So talk to me about that process when you're writing for young people. I mean, is it, I've often been curious about that. Is it you pushing back about, you know, being a 40 plus year old man and, and putting yourself into 17 year olds or 16 year old shoes? Or is it just total imagination? Talk to me about that process. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not pushing back. It is imagination. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, I have a long standing philosophy that there is no such thing as realistic fiction. It is all fantastical, even if it looks like our world. It's still a created universe. It's still characters arcing towards their destinies and running into coincidences and tied up in some kind of bow at the end. And um, so I think if I can embrace that, then certainly the illusion between the putatively realistic and putatively fantastical is, yeah, I find easy. I just think you know, all, you, all I have to do is create a world where the story can plausibly take place and that's it. And that could be anything. Um, but in terms of why it's just the same thing. It's just, it's just, it's just imagination. And it just, it's just, um, I see, I think Ian McEwen writes beautifully, but you can't believe what he says. I think there is <laughs> certain levels to his plots that are just bullshit like the like something like the end of Saturday, for example, and so that so that's that's a, that's my big example. I challenge you on. I think that maybe his fictive imagination isn't as good as his prose, and so he might not be a good example. Marquez, genius, absolute absolute genius. So I can't compete with that. But I mean, I think it's just an act of imagination. That's all. We were all we were all teenagers, so it's not like it's not like I'm imagining something I never was. Although that is also the job of the novelist, you know, to, to, to plausibly inhabit the head of something that you've never been. So, no, I think it's just a leap of imagination. I sound really defensive. I don't mean, I don't feel really defensive. Oh, oh and I don't want you to because <laughs> the value of YA is, is enormous. And often, you know, when I speak to a lot of adults these days, they always say, and I read YA. So, you know, we're just putting it in a category. Everyone yeah. reads it. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, because Harry Potter really was the explosion. And all of those people are grown up now. And there are, you know, there, I, I'm really not one of those people who makes any sweeping statements about why is this and adult yeah. fiction is this, because of course both are full of a few great books, some pretty good books, a lot of mediocrity. That's just the type of any art form, you know, but I, you know, but I will argue with adult readers who say that YA is all not very good. And I will argue with YA writers who dismiss you know, adult writing um, but yeah, but I, but a part of that is that truly those millions of kids who read Harry Potter or Twilight or Hunger Games, they're in their 20s and 30s now. And yeah. they are still hungering for that kind of, there is, I do believe there is, because the teenage time is so transitional, there's a, a kind of, 
when, when asked about the difference between them, the only answer I've been able to even plausibly come up with is, I feel like YA fiction is about exploring your boundaries and that adult fiction is about being limited by your boundaries. And I think that to me, I like that. And, well, and there, even then they're only tendencies, mm. but there is something hugely poignant about exploring a boundary. Um, really, it's, it's all on you know, the cusp of things and pushing yourself farther and there's great emotional access to it. So I think they're, I think they're a little less afraid of open emotion. They're a little less cynical about open emotion, which is neither good nor bad. It's just maybe a different approach. But um, if you really want to read emotional stuff, there's a lot of it in YA. When I was growing up, the category didn't even have a, a name. I mean, I was a young right. woman, yeah. right? I mean, you would have been the same. But do you know, I remember very often when I was working in a bookshop on the shop floor, and I did that for a long time, um, people would come in and say, you know, particularly parents, you know, they, they, they don't want to read children's books anymore. And, you know, they're 14 or 13 or 16 or whatever. And, you know, things I was looking at at the time, because there wasn't much of a book like flowers in the attic or day of the triffids <laughs> you know that kind of stuff because there really wasn't that category yeah. and now and in a way I felt uh, that we lost readers you know people often say that people stop reading and I felt that we we lost readers that time whether the stories were there or not I don't know but we hadn't put them in a category that they were familiar with well there were far fewer yeah uh, and, uh, you know, and Flowers in the Attic is such a hilarious example because yeah. everybody read it. And they everybody. Are just, they are broken, cracked little books, the Flowers yeah. in the Attic books. Terrible, terrible. They, they are not wholesome. No. Um, you know, but, you know, people my age, um, we went straight from, uh, you know, there was Judy Bloom. Yes. A, she lived in the Pantheon forever. I will not hear words against her. She's incredible. Yeah. But apart from her, you would go from, say, Beverly Cleary to yeah. Stephen King. Yeah. Which is a funny little jump, but, you know, God bless Stephen King for making generations of teenagers readers. Um, but, yeah, I, I completely agree. There were some, but mostly it was kids or adults, and that's it. The teenage years got overlooked. I guess they assumed that we would be down at the sock hop. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? So yeah. I want more fools them because, I mean, my God, look at how much it sells. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now tell me about Burn. Okay, Burn is uh, Burn is part of the Burn is my twelfth book, and I think it might be the first that can be described in one sentence, which is it's a nineteen fifties America, but with dragons. Yeah, and it's and that's about, simple, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. alternate reality. I love alternate reality. <laughs> uh, and so it starts in nineteen fifty seven with a girl called Sarah Dewhurst, who is fifteen, just about to turn sixteen, 
uh, with her father. They're alone. Their mother, her mother has passed away. And they have, they're so poor that they have been forced to hire a dragon to work on the farm, which is only something the poorest of the poor have to do. And so the dragon arrives on their farm and he's called Casimir. And it turns out that he isn't there by accident, that he's got a prophecy to look out for. But things from there go askew, quite radically askew. This is um, the most twisty book I've ever written. And um, there's a cult of, uh, that worships dragons called the Believers. There's an assassin sent on the way, we think, after Sarah. There's FBI agents, FBI agents after the assassin. And, uh, and then that's just part one. So I don't want to give you anything more away. It's, it's, don't, um, because I'll, I will say that it's a thriller. I think so. I mean, I really want, I'd written two books in a row where plot was a different kind of beast. It was, uh, you know, their release was very internal and it was a diurnal novel. So it was just a course of a day and I had to cram everything. It was the Mrs. Dalloway challenge. Can you cram an entire life into a day? Then And the Ocean Was Our Sky, which was a retelling of Moby Dick. So I had a particular path that I needed to follow anyway. So this one, I just, I wanted to write something really freewheeling. I say, and I say this without hesitation, that um, any writer who says the plot is not important is a writer who cannot plot. Mm. It's just as important as any other thing. And if you can get it working, oh, it's so exciting. It's so much fun. And if it's working, it's working. So then you can write in all the stuff that you care about, all the themes, all the characters, all the you know, the ups and the downs. And so I wanted to write a story, story, story. And, um, and you have. Uh, yeah, I think I did. I, I just want to share with you this line that I've picked up because I've been in the business for, you know, all my entire life. I went to a John le Carre event once and I, I still love reading him. I think he's a master storyteller mm. and I love a spy novel. But anyway, so um, I was at this event and, you know, it was full. There was 500, 600 people there. And, of course, you know, one person put their hand up and, and he said, you know, tell me, um, are there any secrets, I think the question was, on to writing on how to write a good story. And he said, well, well, there are, there are. And he said, there is a story that is the cat sat on the mat. Then there's the other story, which is the cat sat on the dog's mat. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, yeah. That, is, that is not bad at all. He knows a thing or two, John LeCarré. He also has a completely other thing where he talks about movie adaptations. He just says, just take the money and redo your kitchen and then go see it. <laughs> so I like that. Yeah. Now tell me, uh, that's a good segue, because I want to um, talk about the challenges of writing long form and then writing a screenplay. God, that must have been hard. Well, I mean, it's all storytelling. I mean, yeah. and you know, there's always some element of hubris about um, novel writing where you, you know, you're asking someone to spend eight or 10 hours of their life with you. And so there, you know, so you've got to just embrace the hubris. Yeah. Be confident enough that you've got something that will last that long. So there's, so why not take that hubris and put it to good work? You know, if I can tell a story, I can, I can write a screenplay. And of course the disciplines are so different, but it's still essentially storytelling. And it's, it, it was, it's fascinating. And I'm really, I have a, another real core philosophy, which I, truly believe that complacency is creative death and i'm so worried about just repeating myself yeah. being afraid to try something new because and just redoing over and over again um the things that were successful for me and that's when my heart is not in it and that's when the writing really stinks so mm -hmm. i always every book i really wait until i have something that feels scary and screenwriting and writing for television are just extensions of that really there um 
you know, there are a challenge. There are a new set of rules to learn and the rules exist for a reason. You can't go in with that cocky attitude of Hollywood doesn't know what it's doing. Well, Hollywood does know what it's doing in a lot of ways. It really does. And so, and those rules exist for a reason. So can you, China Miebo calls it engaging with the protocols while still telling your story. You know, it's not following rules. It's engaging with the protocols. Can you do that and still tell the story you want to tell? So it takes a lot of practice. You know, I mean, I've, I've really, I, I, like I say, I wanted to do it to learn. And so, and I have learned a lot. And I think I've gotten better over the years, I hope. <laughs> um, but it's really that. It's wanting to be, ooh, scared that something isn't going to work. Scared of failure. Because that's when I'm really paying attention, I think. That's when I'm really awake and really dedicated to what's on the page when there's the real chance that it could all go tits up, if you know what I mean. Mm. Can I say tits up on your podcast? I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's fine. We've, you know, <laughs> adults don't mind. Um, in terms of craft, and a lot of people um, want to know this about a writer, how do you approach your career? Is it, you know, nine to five? Is it because, you, you know, you hear, it's like sometimes people have this vision of me, for instance, and, you know, all I do is sit around all day and read a book because I've got this business, <laughs> you know, can you imagine how lovely? Or if you work in a florist, all you do is sit around and smell the flowers or... Yeah. Um, Tell me what it's like. What is day-to-day like of being a writer or being an artist? Well, I mean, I always preface these kinds of things with um, nobody can tell you how to write. They can only tell you how they write. Mm. And so if you're a writer out there, take what sounds useful and just ignore everything else truly because there are many, many, many paths up the mountain. And if you end up with a book at the end, you've done it right. So for me, I always say really play to what you do well know yourself and know what motivates you best. Like, for example, I know that I um, work better to go to goal towards goal than towards time. So I rarely, very rarely say I'm going to write for two hours. I usually almost always say I'm going to write a thousand words or 1500 words or five pages of a script because that is, I know that works. And however long that takes is however long that takes. And to me, that's what works for me. If some people might find time better, but I found that nine to five works for me because I can treat it like a job. And that actually, that actually gives a nice, it's a nice um, signal to other people. <laughs> you know, if you're doing it nine to five, then they're more willing to accept it as a job. Uh, so they, then they don't say, are you writing or are you working? You know, so, uh, so I do nine to five. I take, you know, I take a lunch break. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm, I'm done because I, you also need to have a life that you live or you have nothing to write about. I stopped working on weekends. I used to work on weekends. And then I found that, you know, I wasn't living as much as I should um, mm. to write. So that works for me. Truly, I'm, not a, I'm also not a big planner. I will have one or two or three images in a book that I really can't wait for. And I usually know how it ends. But it allows me to write without feeling completely lost, but also not feeling too constricted to create on the day. So that balance is something I found out just through experience of, of what works for me. So, but again, there's no wrong way. There's no wrong way. I have a, I have a friend who plots plans for months and then writes it all out in a month. And I could never do that. Mm. But we're both right because we both published novels. So I spoke to Lee Childs last, I think it was last year actually. God, I love a good Lee Child book. I really do. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he said, which really surprised me, he said every time he sits down to write, and I can't remember how, much he's, how many books he's got, but it's many, it's over 20, let's say. And he said every single time he sits down to start his next book, it's as hard as the first. 
Do you yep. feel the same? Oh yeah. 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 I know writers, we say, well, kind of say the same things that you sit down and you think I've completely forgotten how to do this. How mm. did I ever do this? And uh, every time, every time. So I don't know. I wish it wasn't that way. It's really quite difficult. You know, there's, it's a huge act of faith to write a book. Yeah, um, it is. Burn is number 12. And I still think, Oh, how did I do this 11 other times? How? So you just have to believe that you did. And I think, and then, yeah, yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah, right right anyway. Okay. We're going to wind down, but I want to bring up Peter Carey because you do I, mention him on your website and yeah. I'm a big fan. I've met Peter several times, but I spoke with him last week at Vine, New York. And we were just discussing um, the musings of isolation and storytelling in isolation. Yeah. But one of the things that we talked about, and I'd like to talk with you about is sense of place. Right, because that's important to him because he still writes Australia, even though he hasn't lived in Australia for 20, 30 years. I can't remember yeah. a long time. Talk to me about that. About where I write or about sort about of place story. in your in your storytelling? Um for me I I've almost I mean I didn't really plan this, but the last uh three of the last four books I've set in the same fictional town in Washington State, which is where I grew up. Yeah, and it's kind of you know the the ob most obvious corollary is sort of Castle Rock for Stephen King or Derry for Stephen King. Mine is called Frome, Washington, named after Ethan Frome, a yeah. book I've never read. <laughs> I just <laughs> the name, um, but I tend to think of it more like because um, Faulkner had Yoknapatapha County, and all of his books are set there, and so it becomes a it's not a real place, but it is a place that evokes all of those powerful, clear emotions uh, that you get as a teenager. You know, I mean, I'm, the Northwest is heavily forested. Um, it is just, there are trees everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And it's a, a place of gigantic mountains. So, you know, I grew up with Mount Rainier, which is a massive mountain on the landscape. And we lived very close to it, just hovering over everything. And that, that is my that is my accepted sense of place that when I think of place, when I think of an imaginative place, that's the first place I go. And, you know, I wasn't born there. I was born in Virginia and I, my first memories are Hawaiian. My dad was in the army, but those are where the key events of my growing up took place. And uh, I think maybe that's the place you carry with you, you know, the, the place you were when the formative stuff happened. Um, so, I mean, obviously I've written books elsewhere and the ocean was our sky set in, you know, in a whale universe more or less. <laughs> Um, and chaos walking is on another planet, but, um, it's on a heavily forested planet <laughs> with, you know, with mountains. And so, I don't know. I mean, I, that's where maybe, maybe it's just because that's where our imaginations first really took off and maybe that's it. So maybe that's the safest or the safest sounds pejorative, but I don't mean it that way. Maybe it's just the place where liftoff happens. And I'm going to stay there. I may go somewhere else, but um, creatively, that's my little patch. And uh, I don't want to be imprisoned by it. Mm. But I think there's lots of stories to tell because I don't see that place a lot. And the thing that I've always said about Peter Carey, which I also say about really great writers that I love, like Ali Smith, the Scottish writer Ali Smith, and the English writer Nicola Barker, is that they feel like something is burning in them that they have to tell, that they have to tell it. And even if nobody read the book, they would tell it anyway. And that's, you know, I'm being a little um, sentimental there, but still there's that feeling. And it's an intellect and an imagination in those writers that churns 
and that boils and and uh, causes upset and isn't afraid of to you know to honk your nose or spray some water in your face, you know. And that's what I love, and that's what I really respond to when I read. And uh, and so to me, that feels like an imagination that is throbbing and thriving. And if Peter Carey is describing his Australia from many different points of view in many different ways, although I mean, Peridot and Olivier is in America and, uh, um, you know, so if, if that's what he's burning to say, um, then maybe it's just because that's where all of his great questions began. And if you have to answer those great questions, well, you've got to go back to the place where you asked them. I like that. I like that answer. And I'm going to look out for that more. I often try and work out, because, you know, as you know, I do a lot of reading here. I often try and work out why I like one book over another. And very often I need to believe it, even if it's fiction, of course. I need to believe it. And I need to feel it. And that's where place comes in for me. And if I don't believe or feel it, then I'm not there. Yeah, I agree. I and mean, that's why I said my utterly slanderous comment about Ian McEwen earlier. <laughs> his prose is beautiful and I do not mm. believe it. And that's, uh, you know, and that's personal. That's a personal response because obviously lots of people love Ian McEwen and I'm not saying that they're wrong. It's just my response to it. But I, I feel like you're right. And I feel like even when someone like Peter Carey writes a fictive universe like Unusual Life of Tristan Smith, the authenticity of the universe is the key thing. Yeah, it has to be a believable place, and that's what I was after with Burn. This is 1950s America, but it's one that has had to deal with dragons. So, what is that society like? What little changes have had to be made, and what little approaches have had to had to be different to accommodate this? Constantly, constantly pressing for what is the reality of this place, and if you can get that, then you can do my favorite thing that Peter Carey and Ali Smith and Nicola Barker and all my favorite writers do which is that the novel feels like a smaller slice of a larger imagined world. Peter Carey is always gesturing towards things that happen after the novel is over. Oscar and Lucinda is constantly referring to Lucinda's future life as a labor leader. We never see it. It's never, we never see it once, but there is this feeling that there is a much bigger world out there of which this story is part of. And that's what I really, I love that. And that's what I try to do in Burr. That's what I try to do in all my books. That this is a, this is a grasp. It's a grab at a, at a story out of a bigger place that you'd really like to see. But I think place is the absolute key to that. You're a superstar. Thank you so much, Patrick. I've just enjoyed this conversation so much um, and I've learned so much as well. Thank you so much for your time and apologies for fumbling to get here, but we got here. It was Zoom's fault. It was neither of our faults. (laughs) That thwarted us both for quite a while, but we conquered. (laughs) We did. Thing to take away, we triumphed over Zoom. We did. We got there. Um, Again, thank you for your time, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.